1 Timothy chapter 3. This could be rightly ascribed as the, the, the focal verses of the entire letter. Paul is writing to Timothy, who's currently the pastor at the church at Ephesus. And Paul is concerned that the church behave as it should. There is a natural progression for Christians individually and for churches corporately. The first is belief and then behavior. If, if belief is in place, it will result in behavior. Um, if, if, there's no, if there's no desire to behave as God's word prescribes, then it's hard to convince me that there was ever any belief. You know? And so Paul begins this, this section by saying, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. Timothy, it is my hope that I'll be able to get to you quicker than I originally thought. Um, but if I tarry long, if that's not what happens, I've written these things that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. There has been a shift in the thinking, particularly in America, of how important the local assembly of believers really is. And COVID did us no favors. We were forced to use live streams and online things. And I do think that that is a valuable tool to have for people who cannot be here. But what it's also done is it's provided some measure of cover for people that don't want to be here, but still want to soothe their conscience in the matter of worshiping. Now, please don't misunderstand me. There are situations in which it is completely appropriate for somebody to do live stream at home. That's why we have it. But when you reach a point that you say, you know what, I don't need to physically be at church anymore. I can just watch it on TV in the comfort of my home, and I have, I have fulfilled the mandate of the Bible. That's not so. You cannot get around that the Bible clearly prescribes that God's people assemble together physically. And no, this building is not the church, but it is the assembly point of the church. If, if this building, God forbid, were to burn down and we had to, we had to meet in a storefront somewhere until we built a new one, that would be the assembly point of the church. But there would always be somewhere that we would need to gather, even if it was in somebody's home. We would gather somewhere as a separated body of believers called out from this world. And, and Paul undergirds this when he says this. He says, the house of God. Now that's true. That's not referring to the physical building. It's the household, the family of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. 
Now, when Timothy receives this letter and reads it to the people in Ephesus, at least one, what parts of it he feels he should, it was addressed to him, but I'm sure a good bit of this found its way to his congregation, they would know exactly the reference that Paul is making. For Ephesus is the site of one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Temple of Diana. And it was known for having 127 pillars. A massive foundation and all these pillars and this huge ornate roof. And it was a modern, it was a, it was a rather, it was a miracle of ancient architecture. And Paul goes right after and says, listen, you're not interested in that temple down the road from where your church meets. No, we're talking about the pillar and ground, the foundation of the truth. And that's the church. The church is not dispensable, friend. It's not optional. If you are to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ, you must have the local church. You must. You'll never be the Christian that you could be and that you should be without a fellowship of believers with whom you meet and interact and grow and sharpening one another. But then Paul, or, yeah, Paul in verse 16. There's, there's, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, but you understand that there are just some that just so succinctly put our truth that we find ourselves coming back to them. John 3.16 being an example. This verse is one of those verses. In fact, there's some evidence that this verse became a hymn of the early church. Because it so encapsulizes what we believe. Those things that we would need to believe together. And without controversy. What does that phrase mean? It means that this is something that we all agree on. There's room for disagreement in here. Did you know that? We can disagree on certain matters of eschatology. Some people could believe in a mid-trib rapture or a pre-wrath rapture as opposed to a pre-tribulational rapture. You'd be wrong, but you could believe that. I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek there. You could believe that. And we could still fellowship and love one another and all of that, and we could move forward for God. Oh, don't tell my fundamental brethren. You could see the Bible version situation differently than I do. Maybe you've got a New King James hiding there in your Bible cover that you hope I never discover. We, we, I, would, I would say that I believe this, this King James is a better translation, but you know what? We can, we can love one another and move forward for God. We could have different tastes when it comes to music or dress or things like that. But Paul lists out some things that he said all of you are in agreement on. There's no controversy here. We confess this together. We confess this together. My Bible class will remember that, that word. If we confess our sin, that word confess is the idea of agreeing together. When I confess my sin to God, I'm agreeing with God about my sin. Yes, Lord, it's as bad as you say it is, and I'm as bad as you say I am, and I need to get this thing right. We agree. We agree together on these things, and here it is. Great is the mystery of godliness. Whenever you see mystery in the New Testament, a mystery is a wonderful, profound, yet hidden truth in the Old Testament 
that God has since revealed to New Testament Christians. I give an example. The, the Old Testament Jew had no concept of the rapture, but it was there. And now we understand it as much as we can. The church was a mystery to the Old Testament Jew, but we understand it. This, this mystery of godliness, this, it was not understood by them how all of this would play out to our ultimate righteousness in Christ. But here's what he says. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Father, would you help us as we look at this verse just for a few moments? Would you guide our hearts and minds exactly to where you want us? And may Jesus be lifted up. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. It says that God was justified in the Spirit. What does that mean? It means that, that Jesus was shown to be righteous. It was evident that he lived a righteous life. And the Spirit, uh, the Spirit um, con uh, confirmed that when he rose from the dead, from an empty tomb. Then it says, he was seen of angels. You know that all through his ministry on the earth, uh, we see evidences of angels ministering to him at different times. They ministered to him after his temptation. They ministered to him in Gethsemane to a degree. But being seen of angels, may I remind you that some of those angels were fallen. Did they see him? Mm -hmm. Did they see what he could do? Did they beg him not to send them into the deep? They did. Preached unto the Gentiles. Even here, like we touched on this morning, the gospel was never just for the Jews. It was for everybody. Believed on in the world. One of the many evidences that I would, I would grasp for the reality of our faith is this man Jesus has changed everything Amen. all over the world. All over the world. And then received up into glory. But as you can imagine, I want to focus for a couple of minutes on one phrase that it begins, this little hymn. God was manifest in the flesh. Ponder that. In this season, we focus on that truth. God was manifest in the flesh. God the eternal, immortal, infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God in the person of his son took on a robe of flesh and limited himself, manifested himself. You see, Prior to that, prior to that, no man could see God. Do you remember? 
Moses begged him. And the best that God could do without killing him was he said, okay, Moses, I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock and I'm going to hide you with my hand. And I'm going to pass by you. And I'm going to let you see, the Bible uses the term, my hinder parts. What that means is I'm going to let you see the glow I leave behind. You can't see me, but I'll let you see what I leave behind. And just in that, Moses came down from that mountain, his face shining so brightly people couldn't look at him. They had to put a veil over his face. The Bible says no man can see God and live. The Shekinah glory came down on the tabernacle and later on the temple in such a way that men couldn't enter because God's too much for us. The Holy of Holies was separated by a veil that was several inches thick, just a cloth. It was so... Beyond the scope of man's ability to handle, that when the high priest would go in there once a year, they tied a rope around his ankle in case he died. He had little bells and pomegranates around the bottom of his ephod. And if they heard those bells and pomegranates stop making a sound, they knew something was wrong. And nobody could go in and get him. So they'd pull him out. No record that that ever happened, but they were ready for it if it did. We cannot begin to fathom the sublime, majestic nature of God's glory. The heavens cannot contain him. The universe is not enough for him. He is everywhere. And yet God, 2,000 years ago, because he loves us, was manifested in the flesh. As Mary in the pangs of her birth. That one final push. All the pain. All the difficulty. All the exhaustion. As she held that newborn baby. She looked upon God. As Simeon and Anna looked upon him in the temple, they looked upon God. Those Jewish leaders that met him at 12 years old, asking him questions and hearing his questions, amazed at this young man. They didn't realize it. They looked upon God. God. Peter, when all of a sudden 
It hit him. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. God, who transcends all of his creation, placed himself in the person of his Son in a human body, manifest in the flesh. And all of it is in the Christmas story is brought in to one name, Emmanuel, God with us. We celebrate God with us. It wouldn't be long. 33 years before God with us would become God for us. Why? That he might open the pathway to then become God in us. God was manifest in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Oh, I long to see him. I wonder what he looks like. I long to touch him. I wonder what he feels like. I do know what he smells like. Did you know that? We've mentioned it before. In the Psalms, it tells us of the Messiah that his robes smell of aloe and acacia and myrrh. I know what he smells like. But I want to see him. You can. How? In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter famously said, I was there. I saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he counted this book a more sure word of prophecy. You want to see him? Look to his word. And by and by, our faith becomes sight. And God with us gives way to us with God. So Father, help us to think on that and to meditate on that truth. What a wonderful thing that God was manifest in the flesh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.